And here we are. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of RPG R&D. I'm Jess Geyer, and I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello. Say hi, Craig. Hi, Craig. And with our guest. <laughs> and with our guest today, John Kennedy. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is John Kennedy. I am a uh, tabletop game designer. I've been working in the industry for almost 17 years now. I've worked on games such as um, Star Trek Adventures, uh, Stargate, the new edition of the Stargate role-playing game, uh, Ninja Crusade, and a bunch of others. And thanks for having me here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, you were actually a bit of a last minute guest because um, our other guest, who we were supposed to have, Kate Bullock, um, she unfortunately wasn't able to make it. So thank you for, for coming in at the last minute like that. Oh, we're my super pleasure. excited, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Craig, do you want to talk a little bit about what RPG R&D is for anyone listening who's new to <laughs> everyone's new, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we can just real quick. Uh, yeah, new, new little stream here. We're also a podcast now for those people who like audio only. So you might be listening to this as a podcast. Um, I took last week or the last week or so and got us all, all over the place on the podcast catchers and, uh, so that's happening. Uh, so yeah, you can uh, if if you <laughs> uh, look forward to you know Apple, Google Podcast, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, everything. Um, basically, the this is like a three part. We have a tri pronged approach here on this show, um, which is we're going to talk a little bit about GMing and a little bit about RPG design, kind of particularly from the indie perspective. Um, and then we have our third segment, which is the potpourri, which is just like what we want to talk about. Um, and uh, we're kind of taking the tack of uh, the GMing stuff that we're doing is um, hitting on a bunch of topics that new GMs might be interested in um, learning a little bit about, um, and experienced GMs might be uh, happily reminded of some things. So today we're talking um, about uh, figuring out what system you want to run, what game you want to run, um, and finding players for that. Um, so I'm going to get this out of the way. If you want to run D&D, &D, you can find players. There's no problem in finding players, but mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the, the challenges is if you decide you want to run something other than D and D or Pathfinder, um, is sometimes finding players for those games, and so we can speak to that a little bit, and also kind of speak to um, just like like what do you what do you want to run, especially if you're a GM uh, looking to do it for the first time, like what's what's a good idea to start with. Um, so let's throw it over to the guest because we make the guest do all the heavy lifting on this show. Yes. Um, so John, uh, thoughts on, um, uh, what thing, what, what new GMs might, uh, take into account, keep in mind when they're looking to figure out what they're going to run for the first time. So if it's your first time running a game, I find that really, again, it's been a while since I've run my first game. Um, but I find that the best thing to do is honestly go with the thing that excites you the most. Um, cause you know, GMing can be scary. I mean, a lot. It's it's stressful. I mean, you have to manage like you know the expectations of all the people in your group. You have to come up with a story that keeps people enthralled, and then you are the one that has to make like the yes or no decisions on mechanics. So if the rule system doesn't support something a player's trying, you're the one that has to come in and be like, okay, here's how we're doing this, and then you have to hope that whatever you decide works. But now that we've gotten all the scary stuff out of the way, GMing is a lot of fun. I mean, I love being a player and I love being the GM or narrator, or chronicler, or storyteller. There's a lot of different titles out there for it. Um, it's just a blast. And if you really, really want to do it, go with the thing that excites you the most. If you want to sit down and run Dungeons and Dragons for your friends, run D&D. D&D's got a pretty simple system that pretty much anybody can learn really quickly. And it's really, it's a, uh, it's laid out very, like, not in a nice way, you know, it's very functional. You know, it's, here's monster, here's all its stats, here's what you can expect, go. Um, when it comes to other games, and I know that there's some people who are like, yeah, you know, I like D&D, maybe I've played it before, or maybe I've watched a live stream of it, but I want to try this game that I picked up at a convention, or I want to go, like, you know, try something completely new, that's great, too, and there's a lot of wonderful games that are actually pretty forgiving for first-time uh, gamers. One of my favorites, and I've busted out from time to time as a party game, is Dread, 
where that is an entire game that you run using a Jenga tower. That is as complicated as as it gets. There's no <laughs> hidden rules. There's like three or four different rules for the whole thing. And honestly, it just makes it, it's a blast because if people have never played a game before, they sit down and go, oh, so to do something, I move Jenga pieces around? Well, I like Jenga, okay. <laughs> and if you find a game at a convention or at a bookshop and it looks really cool to you and you flip through it and it just grasps you where it's like, no, I want to play this game called Centauri Knights or I want to play this game called, um, oh man, it's a, the little, um, it's a kind of a fairy tale game where you play toys that live under the bed. Oh, is it Tangled? I can't, I'm going to, somebody who's like, who's listening to this right now is going to go, I know the name and it's blank. They're screaming at the podcast right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, um, and the reason when you go to something that excites you is because if you are motivated, if you're having a blast, like just coming up with it and running it, the players are going to pick up on that. I've played uh, a lot of games over the years, and some of them I've sat down and been like, I don't know if I'm going to like a game called Aces and Eights. I mean, it looks really complicated. I haven't really played a lot of Westerns. This game might not be that much fun. But the person running the game was just so like animate and excited about it. That soon, I'm like, no, yeah, I'm gonna like kick over this platoon and I'm gonna like, aim my gun. I'm gonna shoot the outlaw <laughs> in the back of the head as he's riding off on his pony. This is a lot of fun. And that's just one of the best ways to do it. Yeah, you mentioned that d and it, it, it is a pretty easy system to learn. Um, but I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it is so ubiquitous. It, it's just everywhere. Um, it's on so many streams. You can tune in and you can like watch Critical Role and you can kind of learn how it's done. Um, and like everybody's older brother had a copy of D and D and it's, I don't know about you two, but for me, that was the first RPG I ever played. Um, and I think it's a lot of people's like gateway drug essentially into RPGs. Um, but I don't actually think that it's the easiest for a new GM, for a new GM, of course, not to, to learn, um, or even for new players to learn. There are a lot of indie games that that purposefully make it make the barrier of entry low for new players to TT mm -hmm. TTRPGs. And uh, there are so many out there. And um, you mentioned like stuff at conventions. That's a great place to, to go in and learn new systems because someone at the table will teach you the rules that you need to know as a player. They'll give you the whole spiel on, on selling their game. And then you can take that to your players and be like, Hey, and just, repeat exactly what your your gm at your convention table said like they will give you essentially a script uh to sell the game to your players too uh and there's so much out there there's so much cool stuff out there if you want to lighten the load on um just complexity of system if you're you know i like i, I think that you know some gms there's different things to get nervous about, right? And one of the things you can get nervous about is whether the, the system is too complex and there's too much to learn and there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, potentially rules lawyering at the table with people who, like, maybe you have players that you're worried that players are going to know the game system better than you. Um, wow. Is there, there are systems out there that are very, very simple. Um, so you can try out, like, uh, the Tiny uh, series, you know, Tiny Dungeon, Tiny... Um, uh, Tiny Supers. It's it's it's, it's like a, I believe a D six based system. It's just a few dice. It's real simple. This the, you know the, the the mechanics are very straightforward. So it takes the weight of um, the mechanical system off your shoulders and allows you to pour that effort um, and and use up those spoons during your game to you know uh, create interesting characters and keep the story moving forward and engage the players. Um, if you have played. This has just been my experience from people. I haven't played enough of it, but I've heard I've heard a lot of people talk about it. If you've played a bit of Powered by the Apocalypse games, mm -hmm. um, the system is very straightforward. So if you the there's there's aspects of GMing it that are very different from a lot of other games in how GMs react to things and hard moves and and but if you if you've played the, the game a few times and you've seen a GM do that, you kind of understand that. The mechanical system itself is simple and a lot of the narrative is built into the system. So and and many of them don't really they rely more on the players helping to come up with the world and drive the story. So you don't have to come up with as much stuff on the fly because there are certainly games where the, the expectation is that the GM is going to invent this whole world that you're going to participate in. 
where um, some PBTA games and some other games as well, you can keep an eye out for those that are have more of a shared world-building philosophy. Um, and the characters uh, make decisions that drive a lot of the story, and you just kind of react to it and 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 build from there. And if you you know if you if you're comfortable with improvising and you don't have to come up with the whole world on yourself because the players are going to help fill in a lot of gaps. So you know, give thought to that sort of thing too. There's there's like any any kind of focus that you want. If there's this thing that you want to minimize so you don't have to be overwhelmed by it, and this thing over here that um, you feel comfortable with. Um, just kind of being in control of all the time, you can probably find a system yeah, that, will, what, for, will, that will fit that thing. For me, one of the things that I struggle with, because I do run, run like 5e online um, during this pandemic and stuff, uh, and I play as a player in another 5e campaign. One of the things that I struggle with when I am coming up with a session for my players is D&D takes a lot of front-loading as, as the DM. Like, you have to know what your players are going to go up against you have to know what their acs are you have to know what the monsters are going to be and have their stat blocks ready and then you have to actually roll for everything that's happening and and traps and like all this all this stuff uh but there's not a lot you don't have to do as much improvisation at the table like you were saying craig uh whereas for powered by the apocalypse moonpunk's a powered by the apocalypse game so i i, I know the system like pretty well it's just you roll pretty <laughs> As a GM, I never roll. I love it. That's the kind of GM I am. I never have to do anything other than, you know, react to what my players are doing. My players themselves are uh, the stars of the show. I am not I am not telling them what's happening. They are telling me what's happening, and I'm telling them what happens when that happens, and then they will react to that. Um, and I, I like that, but that is going to be really intimidating for some people, too. So... I would say like those are almost two sides of, of a, of a binary. And then you have the non-binary uh, no GM games, which are also super, super awesome. That's actually also an interesting thing that to try to explain to someone who's going to be GMing for the first time is that, I mean, we, we do stress at the beginning. It's like, you're telling a story, no matter what the game is, it's really just all about a story at that point. I mean, otherwise you're just playing like, you know, really complicated, like, chess um <laughs> but the thing to keep in mind is that you are um you're going to make the bad guys for the game you're going to be the person that the your players the heroes are going to be going up against and i know that for some people they want to keep like you know there's it gets competitive where they're like oh i don't want to make it too easy for the players and it's like it's not about whether it's easy for the players or too hard for the players it's about whether the players have a good time and some players will have a good time if everything is handed to them on a silver platter or their level 10 PCs are slaughtering wave after wave of level one goblins. But the important thing to focus on is just really telling an interesting story. And I know that something I've heard uh, at a couple of panels over the years is that there's some people where they're like, I don't know if I could tell a story that's as interesting as uh, Matt Mercer from Critical Role, or uh, maybe they'll play with it a GM at Gen Con and they'll run this incredible like story for them. And for new, for new GMs, it can be daunting because we'd all like to think that in our hearts, you know, that we're Academy Award, you know, winning uh, actors who just haven't had a chance yet. And I think a lot of people get a little bit of stage fright because being the GM, you do have to be part actor, part director. Um, you have to put the scenery out there by describing everything. And granted, yeah, you're uh, kind of what you mentioned with D&D earlier you have to be prepared to like, you know, to load in all these details where mm -hmm. if someone walks into Waterdeep, maybe they've read all the novels about Waterdeep. Yep. So they know, they know the name about that, of the food stall owner on Main Street. And you're like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. He spells Hot Pockets. Uh, there's Hot Pockets now. <laughs> but yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, really, for your first story, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There is the chance that if it's your first game, it might not go well. I've been there. I've uh, recently, I've tried to run a game in the, the Age of Sigmar game that just came out recently. And granted, I don't think I was as prepared as I should have been. And the players, they were just kind of lukewarm going into that setting to begin with. So it never really got off the ground. And I've run, I'm going to say hundreds of games over the years. So if that's a problem that I face, you know, I'm not saying that it's to new GMs that that's a problem you're never going to be able to defeat. But it's just something to expect, where every time you bake a cake, there's always the chance that the cake's not going to turn out that well. It's not because of you. It's not 
because of anything else it could just be the ingredients just didn't work or random happenstance and you didn't really get a good cake but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try but and, you still you know, had cake yeah you still all got to get together and have fun and and talk with your friends and and goof off around and talk about Marvel movies and Star Wars stuff, which we're going to do later. Um, and and you still got cake, even if it's not always one. I'm going to throw this out there, and this is pro- I'll probably come back to this a few times during this GM stuff. Is something to keep in mind um, as a new GM: the players are on your side. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. want you to do well. They will help you do well. Um, so don't but feel like you're alone. You have to feed them the flavor of cake that they want, though. Yeah. You have to make sure that you are, like we mentioned in our previous episode, um, like having a session zero and setting your expectations. And so your players know what kind of story you're, you want to tell and what story they want to tell. And picking a good good um, game for that, picking a good system for that will, will make sure that they stay on your side because you're feeding them delicious cake that they like and not feeding them a flavor that they disagree with. Um, but when you have a when you kind of break the the social code there um they are more willing to break that social code too and then you get like some of those problem players who like don't want they don't like the story that you're telling so they're gonna take it off the rails on purpose um which has happened to me a couple times in my life but then uh to 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 speak to like what we're the other, the other part of this little discussion, which is if you know what type of game you want to run, now find players who want to play that. And how can you find players that want to do that? Um, you know, we're all living in the COVID world right now where most a lot of gaming is happening online. Um, and so there's a lot of communities. Um, and there are communities built up around a lot of different games. Um, and it might take a little while to find some of those communities if you search around a little bit or ask people um, in your social circle, uh, people in your, you know, uh, pe- people that you've gamed with on other games, people that are into gaming. And you, you might be surprised to find out that a friend of yours knows, um, you know, doesn't really play PBTA games, but they uh, often, but they, but they like them and they, you know, they frequent uh, some uh, message board or forum or something where there's a lot of PBTA going on and people are looking for players um, or looking for games to play in. And so, uh, like, you know, the, the big thing is just like be clear about what you want to do, what you want to, what you want to run, and go find that. Um, and it, it might take a little work, but you'll, you'll, you'll find it darn near every game that, uh, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of games out there, but a lot of like a lot of what you're looking for, you'll find some community somewhere. What are some of those places that, like, some specific places we can go online during COVID, um, or maybe even when we're able to go back in person to game stores? Like, where do you all find your players and find your games? Whew. Um, well, I a lot of times I'm mostly running my own stuff, and I pull those out of my Discord and fans of the games. Um, but I mean, I like you know, I know that there are a number of a number of different game companies that have organized play stuff outside of just D and D and Pathfinder Two. Uh, Magpie has a curated play program. Um, it costs money to play in those games. They um, but you're getting like a top-notch experience with a very experienced GM, um, and you're playing a Magpie game that is, you know, it's a game that's been that was play tested for three and a half or four years, and it's, you know, it's 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 a really well put together uh, system and a well put together program. Um, and then, you know, I think Discord uh, and any any game company that has a Discord, um, if you can find the creator via Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and if you can find their Discord and get into the Discord. You can almost certainly find people who want to play the game um, in there. There's often dedicated channels um, specifically for forming up groups, finding people to play things. Um, uh, there are organizations, there are there are like places like the Gauntlet where they have all sorts of people that are playtesting things that they're creating and there's just people that are running games that they like. Um, there's other um, or, uh, uh, communities like that. Um, and with, with all, you know, with any online community, you know, you, you spend some time, get to know the community, figure out if it's kind of the community that's for you there. Not everything fits for every person. Um, but, uh, but you can dig around and you can find all those things and ask, you know, don't be afraid to just ask in your social circles, um, amongst your gamer friends. Cause you never know. You might be surprised how many people have, uh, you just know like, Oh, I'll point you to this. I'll point you to that. 
honestly, that's what I've been doing a lot lately, where um, all, all that Craig said is great. And for me, um, every so often, I'll just be on Facebook and I'll just make a public post and say, hey, I've really been missing playing Vampire the Masquerade. Does anybody know of any games are starting up? And um, if you have a lot of gamer friends, a lot of them will be like, we've been trying to get a game off the ground. We'd love to have you. Here's the link to our Discord or our Facebook group. And it's actually kind of impressive how, um, like, it's weird to say with the internet, because the internet's been around for a long time now. And not to date myself, but I remember when the internet was dial-up. And a lot harder <laughs> to network over dial-up. But um, especially in, like, the last 10 years, I mean, we went from, like, you know, posting little adverts on Facebook or, or LiveJournal you know <laughs> back in um, the day yeah uh but now like discord is just amazing because discord is very like it's got so many functions to it where discord you can chat you can also voice chat uh people can pin things inside of channels and if like craig said if you find like the creator and they have their own personal discord you can go there and they can like you know you can actually ask them the question and then they'll probably respond to you soon or if not one of their friends or one of the people who have freelanced for them will answer the question. And there have been times when I've tried to figure out a mechanic for a game, like um, a year ago, uh, before COVID, before the plague hit our once mighty world. <laughs> in, the, um, in the before times. In the before, in the before time, times. I had a question about RuneQuest, <laughs> about the new edition, and I we just couldn't parse it out. And then I'm like, wait, I'm doing this the wrong way. And I think I actually messaged, I think it was John Wick, and I'm just sort of like, hey, do you play RuneQuest? And he kind of laughed. It's like, uh, yeah, I think I've played RuneQuest. And I'm like, oh, how does this rule work? And boom, we got the answer in real time. Um, and yeah, it's just, if, if you're nervous about using any of the, like, the things that we've mentioned before, because it, maybe it does seem a little scary, um, don't be. I mean, the worst thing that can happen, honestly, is people just ignore you when you make a post. And I, that can you know, hurt, but I'll, the internet moves so fast. And sometimes it just gets lost in the shuffle. But you're going to find that most of the time people are going to respond. And even if you don't get an answer that you like, like if they say, yeah, we just started up a group, it's pretty full. But if it, you know someone drops out, we'll keep you in mind. That's still like they'll keep you in mind. And there's a chance you'll get to play in the future. Um, yeah. I mean, especially if you want to be a GM. So many players are looking for GMs because GMs are, I mean, I feel like they're not rare because I love GMing. But um, most people, I think, just like to be players. They like to experience games. Um, so they, they, if you're, if you're an enthusiastic GM who is willing to put in that time, you are a valuable asset in the community and, and people will jump at the chance to, to have someone who wants to be the GM for once. Um, and, uh, uh, two other places that I've gone that I've had success, uh, finding games, um, are Facebook groups. Your, your local area probably has a gaming Facebook group, um, and they probably post ads and you can post an ad there too. Um, and also your local Reddit, um, your local subreddit will probably, you can do the same thing, post like, hey, I'm looking for a group. Your state might even have like a gaming subreddit. Um, and then there's also, there are some apps that are, that people are trying to start. I think it's called like Crawler or something like that. It's kind of like a Tinder for gamers. That's a cool, uh, cool name. Like yeah. <laughs> I think it's that. I, I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but um, there people are being inventive and you can go on roll 20 and find games like there are places to go and if if that's something you want to do just yeah like like john said don't be afraid just just do it <laughs> well there you go problem solved <laughs> no one that. <laughs> no one ever has to talk about this topic on a podcast or stream again <laughs> <laughs> oh Oh, that's that's the forever problem, though. Yep. <laughs> as long as there are GMs, there will be GMs looking to find the players for the right games. Yep. Um, let's see. We're all designers here, right? We've all mm -hmm. designed um, RPG stuff to uh, one extent or another. And um, as we take people kind of through an eight-episode course of like just talking about uh, game design... Um, and just the general process of it, we hit upon setting and lore um, and like the world that your game is in. Um, after you have that big idea, it's kind of like, well, now what does this world look like? What do I want um, to engage the, the characters with and get the players um, excited about? Um, so uh, Jess, how about, what, what, uh, where do you start when you are looking at um, kind of developing lore and setting for the world and how much you know and we can kind of expand that to how much do you 
how much do you create? How much do you leave for the players and the GM to kind of create together? Um, uh, yeah. How expansive does it get in it? Like a core book? What's the what are the value of uh, what's the value of uh, supplements with additional setting and all that sort of thing? We can just kind of dance all over this topic. Yeah, I, I really I don't think that there's one right way to go about doing this. Um, you probably already started to have an idea of what your setting is just in general with your big idea that probably came hand in hand. And you already, might already have like a little bit of that lore in your head too. But like Craig alluded to, how much you're giving to your 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 players and to your GMs um, and how much you're expecting them to build can really change the way a game is played. Um, from a teacher's perspective, if I, if I just tell my students go and do a thing, they're going to sit there and stare at me blankly and they aren't going to know what to do. They're going to freeze. So I, I think that there, there have to be some sorts of guidelines. Um, there, you have to put your players in a box um, whoever's players here, meaning both players and GMs, um, you have to put them in a box so they know what the boundaries are, um, because that's what makes people feel comfortable, especially for, for GMs, um, it's, so they know where they can build. Um, but if you give them too many rules, you know, that's when you start getting your, your like in the education world, that's when you start getting your students who are going to want to test those limits they're going to want to, they're going to want to start breaking things or they're going to feel so constricted and restricted by the rules that you've set out that they're not going to want to play in your sandbox or going to want to go play in a different sandbox um, so from my perspective I I like to set up a framework for what does a setting look like what is definitely there and what is definitely not there so for moonpunk, Obviously, it's set on the moon. We knew it was going to be a dystopian moon, and we knew we wanted it to be like retro futuristic because it was based on some Highline novels. Um, and because of that, we knew, okay, we're gonna have we're gonna have retro futuristic domes. So we know that there are definitely going to be domes, and we know that there definitely are not going to be guns. No guns because if you shoot a gun, guns in a dome, and domes <laughs> doesn't work out. So we we knew that, and we just kind of started building in from there. But because it's a powered by the apocalypse game, we wanted to make sure that there was enough room for the players and the GM to negotiate a setting on their own and build characters. Um, so while we had, we gave them like a rough sketch, like here is your setting, here is what is happening in the game. Um, and now you can build up around that. So um, from that perspective, it was pretty, pretty loose. Um, but at the same time, my instinct, what I like to do as a writer and a creator, I'm trying to tell people about my story. I want them to know what I'm coming up with. Like, let me tell you about all the 3,000 factions in my <laughs> in my fantasy world. Um, <laughs> you have to kind of find a balance. <laughs> um. Okay, this might be a loaded question, but I'm going to give it a shot. John, you've worked on a number of properties, quite a lot, um, including ones that have very expansive setting and lore kind of built. Some of them being based on IP um, that are kind of outside the gaming world, and some of them also just being games that have very expansive settings um, and a long history in some cases. Um, what's been your experience with, uh, like the, the development of that, like from the game designer and, you know, like, I, I think I'm almost like asking you to kind of step into the, uh, step into, or give some insight into the line producer role, um, who is like for people not in the know, like if there, if the game, if there's a game, uh, that has a, you know, it's a game line, there's a lot of books, there's a lot of stuff that has to be kind of coordinated and everything, the line producer or, or, or some name, some title like that is going to be the person who's kind of keeping track of like all the pieces and parts and making sure that they're all going to work together. And then the, then the freelancers and the other designers come in and they, they, they do pieces. So take it away, John. Yeah, I'm really, really interested in this because it seems like such a daunting task to take an existing property and develop it. <laughs> well, the first thing that you learn um, early on is uh, the word no, where... Um, <laughs> Well, because uh, a lot of people, they think that we just have like free reign to do what we want. And while there are times when I most certainly wish that we did, um, usually when you license a line from a major company or from a specific writer, they will want to do things on their own with that line. And so what you do will reflect on them, even if they do say, okay, your RPG is its own universe. We have our universe and then your RPG universe. They still don't want you like 
taking Star Trek and then doing, okay, we're going to do uh, Star Trek where all the women are naked all the time. <laughs> and it's just a whole, it's all one giant strip club in space. And then we're just going to put the Star Trek label on it and we're going to sell it like that. Because then, you know, then at that point, CBS gets really concerned. Like, um, I don't know if we really want that on our brand. Uh, <laughs> But um, most of the time when you're working with like, you know, uh, a company or the creator, they're like, they'll be very quick to say, hey, we're not so certain about that. And that's when you know when to back off or go in a new direction or repackage the idea. But the moment that you get past that, like initial, like, you know, like meeting, because you're always going to start off with a meeting with people associated with that IP. Once you get past that, that initial meeting, that's when I don't want to say the nightmare starts, but that's when like the true enormity of the task steps in. Because um, using Star Trek as an example, over like what, 50 years now of just shows, books, toys, comics, movies, um, and just it's a, a gigantic universe. And it's a universe that does trip over itself at times. You know, they'll release a new series and then the, for better or for worse, one episode won't match up with another episode. And that just happens. Imagine having to create an entire game based around that where it's like, okay, I'm going to be faithful to the setting. But man, I've got 200,000 words to work with. And this is literally, I'm going to say, 100 million words of other material <laughs> just attached to it. But the best thing to do is once you have an idea of what you're doing, um, just make, the, make an outline, put down the ideas that you really want to pursue with it. And then once you've talked that over with the creators of the, of the game or game of the IP, then you can just roll with that. And the important thing to remember is that you're going to be creating something that is obviously people have tread there before. And you are going to try to put your own, like your own touch to it, you know, your own style, but don't worry about emulating people who have come before. Just focus on what you want to do. Like as try as I might, I'm never going to be Gene Roddenberry. Um, I'm not going to be Timothy Zahn. I'm not going to be, you know, like I'm not gonna be Leonard Nimoy. I mean, I love Leonard Nimoy's work. And I'll never be able to reproduce that. But what I can do is try to be faithful to the tone of what they've done and try to make like, you know, this is John Kennedy's work on, you know, the Gamma Quadrant book for Star Trek Adventures. Um, and yeah, it, it does, it is a pretty, pretty big and daunting task, but it's so rewarding because when you get that book in your hands, finally, it's all worth it. <laughs> now, there's a lot of great insight there, but I also see what in what john described is very there's a there's a similar co uh, foundational core to what jessica which was describing which is you've got like what the world is about what it contains what it doesn't contain star trek contains you know five-year missions and exploring strange new worlds and it does not contain you know casinos full of naked women um well i don't know <laughs> captain kirk might say something different <laughs> uh, fun fact captain kirk uh if if you extrapolate out from the uh from the series in the original series he probably only has sex with two women that's such a nerdy thing to say Greg. <laughs> i didn't come up with it somebody somebody sat down and looked at the episodes and was like okay well he's hitting on her and he's like you know he's he's acting away he's acting kirkish right but there's only really two times that he like probably actually did it but now i'm trying Riker to remember. has a better average than that I'm trying to remember who it is one is carol marcus and um well they were talking about the series so i'm not sure well I, I guess this carol marcus she's from the movie from i think she the Wrath of Khan, but she's part of the but she's part of the original series. anyway okay we're sidetracking um <laughs> sidetracking but uh yeah it's like when you're looking at it from if you're if you're developing your own thing is to kind of establish what um what it what the setting's going to be and what it's not going to be and that might change like as you develop the game as you come up with new and interesting things to do mechanically or as you kind of redefine what the core idea of the game is about like we talked about in the last episode where you're kind of defining the things that you have the characters doing and what the what what the game is about and what it's really about um, text and subtext, all that sort of thing. Those things might change, so you might tweak all of that. And then on top of it, too, um, like Jess said, there's no wrong way to do it. You can create a game that doesn't have a great deal of setting to it at all, and you can rely, that like this game relies on the players and the GM developing a setting as they play. And then you can also, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you can have a game that's like a 
bunch of stuff and you can really go and have a really great deep detailed unique setting because there are players who love to just read that kind of stuff and absorb that and then there are players who I eh, don't really particularly care if I know the basics I'm good and I'll just I'll just riff on that um, and um, don't be afraid to try different things in in that spectrum um, and innovate and try to come up with different ways to approach it I'm actually toying with an idea right now for a game um that's a horror game set in a town that won't let you leave the game is set in this town this town specifically it's a very stephen king kind of thing um and i thought well the, the problem i have with that is like if i play the if you play the game jess and you learn that you know bob the high school janitor is a vampire <laughs> well bob the high school janitor is always a vampire and so the next time you play the game, you know that Bob is a, jan- is, is, a, is a vampire. So my plan for the lore and the setting is like the town is going to remain the same. That There's going to be a bunch of stuff about the town that's kind of set so people understand the, the, the town. But I'm going to take all those characters and I'm going to give every one of them, all the major NPCs, I'm going to give them options of who they can be. So when you play the game, you can change all that up and there's going to be a PDF a form fillable PDF with like, here's your 24 major NPCs with a field that says, put in here what they are. Like when you're in the book and you're reading through and you're just saying, okay, this person's a normal human. This one's a vampire. This one's a cannibal. This one's <laughs> um, a cultist, a leader of a cult, you know, whatever it is. And you can have that be different every time so that, that when, when Jess plays the in my game for the fourth time, um, <laughs> like it'll be a completely different experience. Um, so you can try all sorts of different interesting things with setting. There's a lot of interesting ways you can go with it. It doesn't have to be all defined or all not defined. Um, you don't have to worry about people um, getting uh, too familiar with it because there are ways around that. Like the thing I'm trying to do, there's also, you know, setting books, like you're doing expansions. <laughs> like, okay, you think you know... Waterdeep, <laughs> well, here's the Dale Lands. You think you know the Dale Lands? Okay, here's, um, you know, pick. Jeez, I'm, I'm, I'm trying Don't to come up me. with an. I'm trying to come up. Yeah, trying to come up with a location in the Forgotten Realms, and I'm like, I can't think of one. There's, there's just so few. Um, <laughs> well, that's I always of, homebrew, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything. Yeah, you can, you can always, you can always build that out, and. Uh, there's there's ways to introduce new things to keep the the setting fresh and interesting even if uh you defined a number of things fairly specifically that's actually a real thing too like um like i'm in a game now um it's a werewolf the apocalypse game and um it's being run by my friend alan and uh he he really loves werewolf and he wanted to run it for us but myself and another player when we were talking about it in our little facebook chat um we just went nuts because we, we've both been fans of werewolves since we were teenagers which is you know again dating myself a pretty long time at this point and so we were just talking about our favorite moments and we were talking about like how like the formal ceremonies of a clave duel and then alan go like just full like he honestly admitted and said look i still want to run this game but i don't know if i can make a game that's going to live up to your expectations and it's like oh no like like we both realized what we were doing wrong where we came in and uh, we just had like our big fanboy hats on. We were just talking about all of our favorite tribes, our favorite Farah, all of this. And we realized that we were kind of like, you know, like I don't want to say showing off, but at the same time we were just like, you know, putting in like all this like stuff of the system that, or the setting that we loved. And Alan just wanted to run a game that, you know, he thought would be a lot of fun for his friends. And so we had to like kind of pull ourselves back because we kind of let ourselves get caught up in our own excitement. I mean, I just literally said we were di- discussing the formal ritual ceremony of clave dueling. And I imagine if somebody's going to be reading this going, hey, I know what that is. <laughs> uh, the majority of people are going to be like, I don't know what that is at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, when it comes to just setting expectations, um, I know when you mentioned earlier about the session zero, that's a great way to just get it all out of the way. And another game that I've played in, um, we, it started off in a town, a fantasy town. Uh, I played the the town the aspiring town hero. We had a friend who was a hunter, another one who was the aspiring knight who wanted to just try as hard as he could be to become a knight. And our uh, GM just slowly expanded the adventure based upon what we did in the town and how we traveled outside of it. Because we had like the plainlands, I think, ugh, I can't remember what it's called, that were outside of the town. And it's like, oh, well, I hear there are goblins hiding in a cave. And he goes, okay, the cave is now a setting. In our, in our world 
So there is the town, there's like the fields around it and the cave. And we kept saying, oh, I have a, I have a cousin who lives off in this village. And he's like, okay, there's the town, the fields, the cave, and somewhere, you're not sure where, is this village where your cousin lives. And letting the players build the world for you definitely takes a lot of like the stress off of you as the GM, but it also gives the players a stake. Because at one point I'm like, hey, I've got a cousin. I want to go visit this cousin. <laughs> and so it wasn't just like, you know, we moved like little like little like uh, players on a uh, board moving across the board to a new location. And it was like, okay, you've never really traveled outside of the town. Our next session is just going to be the journey. And that's how our campaign just continued from there. Yeah, there are some really good lessons to learn as a game designer from stories like that, because I, I'm I'm sh everyone loves in games when they feel like their character's background is taken into account. Everyone loves that. And GMs love to add their own flair to things. That's why so many people homebrew, even though like, for example, in D&D, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of core books and then novels and all of that listing out the lore, but people still want to put their own flair into things. So if you like, you don't necessarily have to stress too much about making a complete realistic 100% world. You can do something like what Craig said, having a small town that everybody has a role and you can customize, or you as a game designer can give the framework for how can my GMs create a world or create a particular setting, or how can they develop an NPC in this game? Your game should always have those rules. Like how, how can, like, what can you do as a GM to design a thing in this game? You should have should usually have some sort of framework for that and and that can come up in your setting discussions another great way to do that as uh, from the designer's point of view is you've got a whole big world that you want to describe well uh, and you want to describe a bunch of detail and really kind of you know give people like look at my imagination mm -hmm. um and you can do that in part of it like really flesh out a part of the world and then give us just some ideas for some other areas and then leave other play areas completely blank. Just say there's a mountain range over there. There's a big lake over there. There's a volcano over there. There's, you know, um, ancient runes over there and don't talk about, don't, don't, don't describe any of that and just leave that to the GMs who want to homebrew. It's like, well, I, I want to play in this world. I like this game, but I don't want to just use like the, the setting that's presented to me but they like look at this the designer left me this whole vast swath of wilderness and this uh you know city in the middle of a flaming lake of fire i can make all the rest of that you know make i can make up everything else that goes with that definitely it, i mean it's, it's now i want to design that setting <laughs> i was thinking Ooh, city in the middle of a flaming lake of fire um I have one one last question probably before we get into potpourri and that's it's for Craig because Craig you you made a game that is set in the 1920s and <laughs> there are very specific things that did and did not exist in the 1920s yet at the same time you have characters with superpowers how did you like I want to know a little bit about the research there and like how you kind of balanced that that's a good uh, uh just a you know side bit of, uh, yeah, when it comes to setting and developing setting that has to do with the real world. Um, is if you're doing a historic game or setting a game in uh, the modern day, but in a particular place, um, you know, there are decisions that go in, uh, it, it's much the same as what you were describing earlier, Jess, about how you make decisions about what things are there, what things aren't there. Um, like with Capers, which is a, a, it's, you know, 1920s gangsters, but with superpowers, the you know there were there were core conceits that were decided that like okay the the cities that we're going to define are like a handful of the big well-known like these are the center of prohibition we're going to we're going to just define those in great depth and then we're going to do some other cities that we're going to give like a one-page treatment so you've got like a, here's a little bit of information about louisville here's a little bit of information about new orleans um and then there's plenty of cities that aren't touched so if you want to you know decide what los angeles looks like during the 1920s you can build in there um, and then, you know, we, it was an alternate history where we did not play on, uh, we didn't, it, the, the game presupposes that, um, racism and misogyny and homophobia and, and so forth, they're not baked into the game. If you want them in the game, you can have a game that delves into those issues, but we didn't bake it into the game because we didn't want to make that into the, you know make that the game yeah. um but it, it and that leaves the the setting open for people can play like any type of character um you don't have to play you know 
Irish, Italian, and Jewish white men in their 30s, um, which is where, you know, most of the popular, well-known <laughs> gangsters fall. Um, there were plenty of other people in real life who uh, weren't those white guys. Um, and then there's, you know, plenty of room for whatever else. And, you know, so they're like, it's a question too, like just of, of picking the things that you want to keep from history that you want to use. Um, and then trying to be true to them, even if you're putting like a super powered spin on them or something like that, mm -hmm. like where does Capone stay? Like we, we, we utilized specific locations that are real world locations. And then we made up some as well. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a question of like picking the things that, you know, you know, you're going to definitely keep true to. Um, and, um, and trying to make sure that like, like in any given city, there's always going to be some locations that are described. These are actual real world locations. They're being treated as what they were historically. Um, they're associated with certain people, um, historical characters. Um, and then there's other stuff that we're making up so that you don't end up with like, well, here's a city that where everything's made up and here's a city where everything is defined from his, from history. Um, you know, I, we, we, we kind of split the difference. Like in those cities, it's kind of half and half. There's some stuff that's made up and some stuff that's pulled right from history. Yeah. I, I just think that that fits so well with kind of what we were talking, even with the GM section. Like, what do you know? Where are you building from? What kind of game are you and playing? Yeah. putting those spins and using made up stuff is you don't have to say it, but it, because um, it's, it's, you don't have to make it explicit, but it implicitly tells the GM you can make up stuff too. Mm -hmm. Like if, if they go, if they go digging into the history of New York city during, <coughs> excuse me, during prohibition, they're not going to find everything that's described in there. And they'll be like, Oh, well, that's just something that they made up. Oh, I, I can just make up whatever I want. I don't have to dig into history to keep uh, true to the game. <coughs> Goodness. Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. That's how you pronounce that. Not not photorealism. That's what you're going for in a game usually. Something that appears realistic but doesn't have to be a one-to-one -one correspondence, even if you're making a historical-based game. There's also something to be said for, like, if I want to sit down and play a game set in the 1920s, and as someone who's, like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very much a, you know, like, very outspokenly queer, it's, you know, I get that there was a lot of homophobia at the time, but there are going to be times when I want to sit down at the game and it's like, yeah, I really don't want to have like every other person in the game calling me, you know, the, the F word. Cause I get that that's realistic and I'm not trying to ignore that that happened historically, but at the same time, it's not a fun atmosphere for me to sit down and just have that thrown in my face. Even if there's a chance for me to like, you know, use my superpowers and beat up all the people who do that. <laughs> don't get me wrong. That would be amazing wish fulfillment there. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, it, it is kind of nice to be able to sit down and to not be hit with that just repeatedly. Because there are times when it's like, yeah, I'd like to play in the 1920s as well. That harkens to what your game is about. Like you can, <laughs> there are people who design games that are specifically, um, that do hold, you know, they pull no punches with uh, some of the, the problems of our history. Um, and those are games that explore those themes. And then when you play that game, that's what you're kind of signing on for. You're going to be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to deal with some touchy subjects and we're going to, we're going to hopefully uh, confront things and learn some things um, and uh, expand our understanding of some other people that uh, are not like us and so forth. Um, but then on the other, you know, on the flip side, there are the games like John's talking about. It's like, well, I would, I would just like to play a game where I don't have to worry about any of that. I want to just have a fantasy. Yeah, I can be a person like me. I think that's also part of the reason why stuff like D&D &D is, is so um, appealing because there isn't uh, history of orcs aside, like history of the actual colonialist nature of D&D &D aside, you could be like, I, I, I'm a queer person too. I've played queer characters in D&D &D and there is not a basis of homophobia within a fantasy game, <laughs> especially. And it's, it's fun and it's relaxing and it's just a nice way to escape, which is what a lot of people want from games. That's mm -hmm. why I agree with you there, John, too. But I also agree with what Craig said. There are games that do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. And that's the great thing about games is that you can find, uh, uh, there's a lot of them. And speaking of a lot of them, there's a lot of Marvel and Star Wars stuff happening, everybody. Wonderful. <laughs> Holy <segue. laughs> crap. Um, 
we had a different guest and a different topic planned for today, and the guest unfortunately ended up not being able to make it. And then I got John on board, and I was like, "Well, what are we going to talk about?" We're like, well, why don't we talk about the gigantic Disney elephant in the room, um, which is all the stuff that came out just recently about Star Wars and Marvel um, movies and TV shows and animated shows and everything else, um, as well as like there's a, there's another one that I want to talk about too, but we'll hit Star Wars and Marvel first. Um, so we're not going to spend, I don't think, right? We're not going to like talk about every one of them <laughs> because no. that's a lot. No, no, no. But what are, what are, what are, what's everybody really looking forward to? What's the thing that one, one or two that you're really digging on? I love Ewan McGregor. <laughs> that's so, all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I'm a totally straight guy and I love Ewan McGregor as well. <laughs> I am excited to see Obi-Wan because I really, I really, I've always wanted to know what he was up to. And I understand he could have just been in exile, just living in the desert for all those years. But part of me has always wondered, like, maybe there was something else that he, he had to do. And so I'm excited for that. Um, I'm pretty much excited for all of them. I mean, I really want to see <laughs> more. I, I, Rogue One is probably my favorite Star Wars movie. And I understand that Andor is going to be a darker take on it. Because um, this is Andor during his, like, the early years before Rogue One, where he is literally a saboteur, an assassin, um, uh, you know, an arsonist essentially, because he's a freedom fighter working against the Empire, and I really want to see the take on the character that made him into the guy seeking redemption in Rogue One, and mm -hmm. I'm excited for more Mandalorian, and then I'm really excited for Ahsoka, because that's going to be really <laughs> cool. Everybody and, loves Ahsoka. And then, <laughs> I've also that's what the they should have called the show. <laughs> everybody loves ahsoka could have been a sitcom go ahead sorry <laughs> um, i'm also excited for the marvel stuff um i was joking uh before the podcast where i'm like the weird person in the room where they'll announce like the main movie and then they'll announce like this third string marvel character only a few people have heard of and then i'm the one that jumps up and down at the back of the room waving a flag going did you hear that uh, uh red guardian's going to be in black widow it's so amazing and then in the um was it Falcon and the Winter Soldier? They have U.S. agent, U.S. agent, everybody. And of course, you're like, okay, cool. And yeah, like, but it's but it's Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But John Walker, U.S. agent. See, that's like there is someone in those writers' rooms that are like, but why can't we make a movie about U.S. agent? Well, no one, John, no one knows this character, but but they're so cool. And oh, okay, we'll give you a TV show. <laughs> They can be a character. That's when somebody goes, hey, wait a minute. This John Kennedy person doesn't work for us. He's like, no, I slipped in the back. <laughs> well, this 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 reminds, this makes me think of um, a great line by uh, Joel Robinson. Is it Joel Robinson? What's uh, Joel Hodge, Hodge, Hodgson? Who, Ho what played? Is it Hodgson? Ho Hodge, Hodgman. Hodgman. Right? Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh man! The creator of Mystery Science Theater three thousand, when when asked by, um, when 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 it was remarked to him when they were making the the shows way back in in the beginning, saying like, well, not everybody's going to get this joke, and he said that's okay because we've got jokes for everybody, and the right people will get that joke. Um, and that's what this Marvel and Star Wars stuff is. It's like you know you're you're you're, you're excited for a tertiary character, and there, there there's people that are developing this that are really like, but not everybody's gonna really dig on that. And somebody in that room said, yeah, but the right people are gonna dig on that. There's gonna be a group that's gonna be just the right group of people that are gonna love this bit that we're gonna put into, even if they're just in one episode. There and people are gonna flip out to see this this. Uh, little known character that they love um and that's the the beauty of having these gigantic cinematic universes is you can have the main main big characters and then you can have these little things that kind of just play out here and there that give everybody a little bit of goosebumps yeah i mean my favorite marvel and star wars um properties aren't even the main movies or anything like that i love agents of shield and i love the clone wars cartoon series like those are my two favorite things within those properties. And okay, well, I there is one Star Wars movie that I really, really do like more than everything else, and that is only because Ewan McGregor is a very awesome uh, Obi Wan. I I really do like Revenge of the Sith. Um, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> 
sorry, I was like thinking uh, about which one I was talking about. Uh, but yeah, there there's just something for everyone, and you know, now everyone's going to want to buy their month long Disney Plus subscription for one or more of these things and there are all there are going to be so many of them that people are going to be competing to know to see who has the most knowledge and when we're back in person we can do pub trivia again there's going to be that one person that just sweeps the themed trivia and i will be that person that will be me. <laughs> yeah it was joel hodgson that's the guy <laughs> hodgson, who created hodgson. mystery science theater 3000 but the the one that i am most interested in is the one that we finally like this just here now we've gotten like a two minute trailer with like a good bit of like what it's going to look like. It's the one, it's one that's been announced for a while is what if, Oh um, yeah. Marvel. What if, which is an animated series that they're just going to be like, well, what if Peggy <laughs> got the super serum, uh, super soldier serum instead of, uh, um, Steve and uh, became Captain Britain and um, and now you know and they've got you know they're from the looks of it and the sounds of it um, it's the actors doing their doing the voice work um, is that correct I believe oh yeah yeah, it's, yeah it's, they have it's, a star studded cast yeah, yeah they, they all have they're all all these people that are signing these multi contract multi film contract deals are also having to do um, you know sub deals for uh, for animated shows so they got like you know the like you know here's here's Haley atwell who's like you know kicking ass <laughs> with that slick shield um you know and just to, to to see the 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 different take on like what happens see i don't know i don't have the depth of understanding of marvel stuff so most like like john does so my i think i'm probably going to get the most enjoyment out of new spins on characters that i've gotten to know over the last 11 years so the what if series looks good um i am totally on board for wandavision just oh, because yeah. just because it looks like plane hopping or they're having some sort of hallucination thing. I think it's going to be like House of M. It's going to be <laughs> Um but but all I know is it's Wanda Envision in like Leave it to Beaver and you know like, like I just want to see what what they do with that cuz they're going to turn it into a at least in part into a comedy. Like they're like this is great cuz the the Marvel movies are great for that. They have they do different things. The Thor movies get space fantasy. Ant-Man is very comedy, you know. Um, so seeing them take characters like Vision, who has mostly been a very serious character, and suddenly having him be like this weird Ward Cleaver type <laughs> character. Yes. Um, and why? Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that stuff most. I, I So far with Marvel they've been able to reimagine villains and some heroes and they've managed to do it in such a way that I don't want to say it's better, but it's, it's just as entertaining, if not more where like um, whiplash who was a very mediocre Iron Man villain who his original power was, he had an electrified whip. And then in Iron Man two, they turned him into this inventor who does show up with two electric whips, but they cut like cars in half. <laughs> and then he, he builds his drone army. And then just like other villains such as pop up where like Hela was kind of like, you know, this, like she was a goddess. And so she had a lot of power there, but she didn't really see her do much with it. And then uh, boom in Thor Ragnarok, she's like wiping out the entire Asgardian army, just throwing knives everywhere. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm pretty like excited to see what they're doing. And I think that they're going to show us a lot of new things, even when they're showing us old things. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, um, Miss Marvel's coming out, and I love the Miss Marvel comics. Me they're too. hilarious, and they're a lot of fun. And I'm excited to see how they're going to mesh that in with like Captain Marvel, because Captain Marvel's getting a sequel. And then they're also they're building towards um, a Secret Invasion, because that was announced as a potential TV series with Sam with um, Samuel Jackson in it. And I just like how now they're starting to branch off, and they're going to have all these different threads. And I, I don't know, I, it all of it looks good. I. I know that we're probably going to get like a stinker at some point. Um, I don't really know which one that's going to be. I'm not going to like be all like doom and gloom and be like this one in particular will be awful because a lot of the ones I didn't think I'd enjoy, I ended up loving the most. Um, I didn't really know much about Ant-Man and I love the Ant-Man movies. Uh, Paul Rudd is just phenomenal in his role. And so I'm just going to wait and be pleasantly surprised. Um, and then we're also getting Eternals sometime next year. And I actually know very little about Eternals. Um, 
just realized that's another movie where I'm more excited about the third string character showing up. <laughs> Apparently, one of the villains in the movie is Black Knight, and I love the Black Knight. <laughs> but no, I mean, I imagine we may get a stinker here or there, but it's nice to know that we're just getting so much new content. And um, I admit, throughout 2020, I've been kind of like a little sad because we didn't really get any Marvel movies mm-hmm. or we didn't really get any new Star, uh, Star Wars stuff. So it'll be really cool to see what they've got coming down the pipe. Yeah, so many people are excited. And there there are so many opportunities now for representation on the screen. Although I would love to see Disney, Marvel, Star Wars. I would love to see them put more representation on the big screen. Um, right. It's it's great to have more of that opportunity within um, their, their TV series. And to see them, I, I hope, not waste that opportunity as well. And you know, this kind of also harkens back to our conversation on, on your games. Like, what are you putting into it? What exists in this universe and what doesn't? this is what you you can learn some things from what's going on with Marvel and Star Wars. Like these are property properties that people are super fans of. They've read everything about it. And, you know, you got to learn that you're going to make some people upset no matter what you do. And you're going to make some people really, really happy. Um, so it's your choice to figure out do you, why not just do what you want to do then? Plus I think the more, risks that disney takes because i'd hate to say that putting more like people of color or more queer characters on the screen is a risk but Mm -hmm. the more risks that they take the more that one they're going to normalize it which is always better and um two i think they're going to be teaching the audience that it's like hey yeah so you really like black panther oh well ironheart's coming out and you know she is an african-american woman who helps who designs her own suits of power armor just like iron man and you're going to get people who like maybe like 20 to 30 years ago, we're going to be like, pass, I'm going to wait for the next, like, you know, Spider-Man movie. But now we're getting more and more audiences, audience members going, oh, cool. Uh, she's like Iron Man? Oh, I want to, I'm going to see your movie. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be kids that can see people like them on the screen. And that is so important. Uh, it, it is so incredibly important for, because um, these are properties that are designed for children. Uh, although, obviously, adults enjoy them very much, too. But it's so important just to feel recognized and to feel like you have a place in the world. And you can be a superhero or you can be a Jedi. It's fun. And with as much as they have coming out, they really have no excuse at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, how many? I, I don't even know what the number is anymore. How many movies they have planned? Like they're, they're doing, like, you know, once it's back on track, it's, what, three movies a year? Um, and they're going to have a dozen properties on tv yeah they're um, just and this is just marvel marvel they not including they, all the stuff you know there's, there's there's all the star wars stuff too so there's like there's no reason to not have representation of a bunch of of, of different things you can take those chances mm-hmm. and the people who are you know jackasses who don't want to watch a gay couple on on a tv show they can go watch the show that doesn't have the gay couple whatever fine um but give the gay couple show to the to the people who want to see that also the gay couple marvel show if they ever do it (laughs) i knew john was gonna have an opinion on this and you're gonna love it just trust me it's like (laughs) the most wholesome romance plus superpowers and i really hope we get to see that with the backstories (laughs) see i mean disney right now they're they're obviously like a they're essentially a megacorp um they they're gonna do what's profitable uh so i'm i'm I'm, i guess i'm glad to see that it's trending to be profitable to have queer characters on the screen to have to have non-white characters on the screen isn't that Um, isn't that a great way to find to find that you've really (laughs) arrived i'm profitable we're we're profitable now yeah great i joked with um joseph character where um i said um in honor of me working to get queer people uh monetized by all the corporations (laughs) out there i think i should get like a decorative rainbow beer koozie (laughs) monetizing queer rights uh oh rainbow capitalism Oh. Well, uh, I think that we're we're all ready to wrap up, unless we have anything else we want to add. I mean, I could talk for days about just this topic, but um, I think that'll do this. Uh, 
we'll uh, we'll be doing another episode in two weeks. Um, that is um, scheduled for if we were to do Friday, that would be Christmas Day, the evening of Christmas Day, which is probably not the best time to try to do a stream. Um, so Jess not. and I have talked. We're going to do that stream on Saturday evening, on the day after Christmas. Um, that would be Boxing Day. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, so maybe great. maybe we'll we'll theme our po the, the the third segment for Boxing Day. I don't know, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll 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 do we'll do Saturday for uh, for that one. Um, so John, where can people find you? What 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 do you what are you really excited about that you're that you've got coming um, in you know coming out in the near future that you were involved in? And where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at JKMyth. Um, and on Facebook as one of the many, many John Kennedys on there. But, <laughs> the one that's uh, probably got like a cartoonish avatar, that'll be me. And then the things I've got coming out soon is we just wrapped up work on the Stargate role-playing game. And then um, Shackleton Expanse, which is our big campaign setting for the Star Trek Adventures line. That'll be coming out soon. And I'm really excited because the box for it looks like an old school tricorder from the original series. So it's, <laughs> it's really cool. I love that. That's amazing. I'm so excited about a Stargate role-playing game. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, I've been, I was thrilled when I heard John was working on it. Cause I was like, Oh, that's so cool. Um, and, and Steffi Devon worked on it and she's just wonderful to work with. <laughs> I'm uh, at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter and uh, you can go to nerdburgergames.com. All my stuff's at drive through RPG as well. Um, and I, uh, I just got back the edited, manuscript of low stakes from my editor today who said um he first time i've worked with the with merrick and he has said he said that uh i nailed it um it was a really tightly written game which i'm really thrilled about um it's basically my take on what we do in the shadows as a role-playing game um i want it <laughs> and and so well you'll have to wait until kickstarter at, at the beginning of next year at some point um but that's that's what i've got coming that i'm excited about and you can find me on Twitter at, at Joska. Uh, I don't have anything brand new that's come out or anything upcoming that's come out um, like big, but um, you can find one of my most recent games at the locally sourced winter autumn bundle. It's the autumn bundle um, on itch. Uh, and my, my new game on that is called the coven of PS 13, where it's the craft meets mean girls. You get to play high school <laughs> stereotypes, being like witches and hexing people. It's it's just a it's just a little mini game that I made for the bundle. Um, but that goes to it's a co-op that's supporting all of the Michigan game developers that uh, participated. So there is a mix of video games and tabletop games. So if that's your bag, go check us out on itch. And we will see you in two for a, not next Saturday, but the Saturday after that. All right. Um... Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And ooh.